0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started with Sarah. How you doing? I'm good.
1: Very well, thank you. How are you?
0: I am very, very good. Now, I'm trying a a slightly different setup, which should have me making better eye contact to the extent that I can make eye contact at all with the camera. The thing is (laughs) the picture of me and you, and what's going on is on a notebook and it's like two and a half feet below the camera. So what I want to do is this. (laughs) And so if you catch me doing this audience, I'm just, I'm just watching the film. And then I will try to remember to look up (laughs) from time to time at the camera. I will figure out video one day. Uh, But uh, you know what? I figured it out enough to hit the go button. And I can't wait to get started with this particular show. Sarah, I just got to tell you, I've got to confide before I, before I hit the start button. I don't think that there's going to be another show this year that I'm as excited about as this You're one. You're pumped.
1: You're pumped for this one, are you?
0: I am so pumped. And it's, <laughs> it's not because I'm in such a great mood or I've had such a great day. I haven't. I'm not. <laughs> um, this is acting, people. Um, no, the, it's because of the subject matter. Uh, You know, uh, deconstruction has been kind of a thing for a while. I think uh, as far as deconstructions go and as far as argumentation goes uh, with deconstruction, this is maybe the best compendium of arguments put together in one place on the Internet. Period. Bar none. Bar none. And, And I have... I've watched the entire internet. Um, (laughs) I've even watched my stuff. This is really good. Now, uh, part of the reason why I think it's really good, um, this may be a little self-serving, I've been saying these things for years. I've been saying... We've all been saying these
1: things. He reiterates everything.
0: I feel like Tyler has dug through my stuff in particular and just put together a, a set of arguments. I know this is not what happened. He does not know I'm alive. <laughs> Except for the one exchange that uh, we uh had on YouTube. He does um he he did not know I was alive before that. <laughs> so um and by the way, uh he he appreciated uh our show and uh, our comments oh. on the last one. So hopefully he will watch this one too. Okay. I really I really should have uh continued communicating with him <laughs> so yeah. uh Tyler hey if you're out there skeptics and seekers at gmail.com hit me up in the email and uh let's talk we got to get you on the show uh I look Tyler right now I know uh because I've been there I know that he does not want to be the poster child of deconstruction that is that is not what he is looking for he does not want to be praised and lauded by hardcore atheists like me this is this is not what he was going for (laughs) but i'm sorry tyler uh you have made an extremely good case and this show might go a little long but i i just want you point out uh all of the well maybe not all but a lot of the little details that often get missed in these conversations and uh, i i thought that tyler did a good job there there are some things that tyler says that i will want to push back on and so in all fairness i will do that too i think that you and i have uh you know a little bit of a conversation around at least one of those things uh coming up so without any further ado as I figure out how to switch over, um, I will. I will tell you, uh, guys. I barely watch these videos one time through. Some of them I don't watch one time through. I just kind of scrub through to make sure that it is what I'm looking for. I watched this video probably five times. <laughs> so this is this is very unusual for me. Let's get started.
2: Um, on this episode, I'm going to go through part two of the intellectual reasons uh, for my deconversion. This is a rather large uh, scripted show. I had a lot I wanted to say and I wanted to get it down um, uh, on, uh, on paper the way that I wanted to phrase it. I do have some episodes coming up in the next coming weeks dealing with issues like divine hiddenness, um, uh, uh, divine determinism and compatibilism and things like that. So please keep your eyes out. Um, we do have a couple episodes on the books. There is one coming up uh, this Friday uh, with Matt uh, Salih. Sol- uh, I-, I think I- I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce the name. I've only ever seen it uh, in print. And I-, I know I've heard it, but I don't recall. But uh, I have that episode coming up uh, this coming uh, Friday evening. Uh- so
0: just for the listening audience, kind of redundant uh, for the audience, obviously listening. Um this is not part one. This is part two. I know that there's a part one. I have chosen to skip part one on purpose. I've listened to it several times. It's it's a good uh beginning to the explanation, but I found it a little bit too theophilosophical for uh my taste, and I think that uh I think that everyone's going to really appreciate uh the meat and potatoes punch. of of this one. And so we'll uh, let Tyler continue.
2: For those of you who are in California time, it's about 8 30 PM California time. Sorry for those of you on the East coast. Okay. So with that, uh, I want to jump in um, and and go through some of my comments about um, my, again, my recent deconversion. This will be the last episode I do uh, specifically about my deconversion, the reasons for it here on out. The content is going to be these issues that I bring up. So talking about divine hiddenness, I'll have content about divine hiddenness. It's not really gonna be tied to my deconversion uh, anymore. So uh, just so you all are aware of that, uh, but this is the, the final part two that I wanted to get to. Okay, so with that, uh, also please leave your comments uh, and your questions. I will interact with them at the very end, whatever's in there. If you have a question, uh, put it in all caps questions and I'll read it when I get. To.
0: And on that, uh, he does. we do not have the part where he goes into questions and comments, so he ends the video. Just before that, uh, I have read the comments below the video. And the comments from the Christians are frankly embarrassing. Uh, Christians, do yourself a favor. Listen to this. Read the comments. And don't do what the other commenters did. That's, that just makes you look bad. It it hurts your cause. Tyler?
2: Add uh, to it at the end. Okay, so with that, in my last episode, I began laying out the intellectual reasons that led to my deconversion from my long-held Christian beliefs. Primarily, the issue that I laid out had to do with the way Yahweh in the Bible seemed out of accord with the high view of God of the, of the God of classical theism, and considering that I think we have very strong arguments for classical theism and one of them uh, had to give, the very terrestrial, very finite, capricious behavior of Yahweh lost out. That was the bulk of the last episode.
0: It was, in fact, the bulk of the last episode, Sarah. Uh, I am sorry I caught you at an awkward moment. <laughs> so <laughs> that, will, that will not be edited out uh, because I can't. Uh, Sarah, um, did, it ever, did it ever occur to you? when you were a Christian, that the God of the Bible seemed really, really concerned with mundane human affairs.
1: It did, which is why you, yeah, you suddenly start asking questions. Um, But uh, some of it is also very normal. You just, you don't always question it either. I mean, it's kind of, it dawns on you slowly that maybe this is weird, but... Um, Most of the time,
0: you're just like, well, this is God. Right. What else do you want to do? You know, at at some point, someone maybe should have asked, why does he want uh, men to cut off the tip of their penises? Yeah, they
1: should.
0: You know, this this seems like um, it shouldn't be a subject of, well, he said it, so I guess we got to do it. There should at least be some kind of reasonable connection with. Uh, by doing this, you, you know, you make yourself healthier, or, or, some such. I, I, I just, I don't know. Why should God care if you eat shellfish? Sh- shrimp is delicious. It's, it's not bad for you. Why, why, why? It is.
1: I mean, I'm highly allergic to shellfish. So, um, and that's why I was told it was a bad thing to eat because. Uh, okay, but a lot sort of, of people toxins. are highly
0: allergic to peanuts. Um, they could eat nuts. So, I don't think that it had anything to do with allergies or health. Um, why does God care if you wear clothes made with more than one fabric? You know.
1: uh i think they were they were just laws for the israelites weren't they at the time so well, but, I, uh, I never thought they were yeah I, I don't know but why I but why should he care was...
0: even about the for the israelites what
1: he shouldn't he really shouldn't but he it's it's just the um, you kind of i don't know i parked it as something that happened in the olden times and the things were different then he was very uh, visual and manifest and you saw him and but along with that came lots of rules and regulation, and it was all part of the, you know, the, the law based uh, system. And that it's only when Jesus comes along that all that goes. Never crossed my mind that it is all a bit. Until you start <laughs> deconverting, I mean, it this wouldn't. Is the it job it, it of wouldn't ap- apologist.
0: Right. It it wouldn't See? have made sense even for the people at the time, <laughs> though. I mean, so it, it's you can't say, well, it makes sense to people way over there a long, long time ago, because. It it wouldn't have. <laughs> Even then, they should have asked, "Uh, why do you care what fabric our clothes are?" <laughs> you know, it, it's a, wow. it's just a terribly mundane, uh, terrestrial kind of thing. As Tyler was, uh, this is the kind of thing he's talking about, uh, here. And I I, I just think that this is one of those things that Christians don't spend any time thinking about because they're in this mode of thinking well you know god said it i believe it so that'll settle it um yep and it it just never occurs to them uh that your god is really fucking creepy because he is he will ki- he will absolutely kill you If the tip of your penis isn't cut off.
2: But in this episode, I'm going to give other reasons uh, that cause me to question, doubt, and finally reject Christianity. However, I'd like to first add that I acknowledge that none of the arguments or objections or data points that I mentioned last time or will in this episode are a singular defeater for Christianity.
0: I'm sorry, why why did he even make penises with the part that he doesn't like? If... I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't get
2: over this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm good. I'm sorry. There isn't a silver bullet that I think falsifies the Christian faith. Rather, it's similar to the cumulative case for Christianity.
0: You know, I was circumcised. Sharing
1: is God. I feel like. I,
0: oh I, I, I feel
2: like <laughs> There's Judaism. I, it's nothing
1: to do with Christianity. I'm okay. With that that tell
0: awful. that to my parents. Um, oh my God! I was I was circumcised as a baby. I mean, it was uh, now. My oldest brother wasn't. I, I don't what? I don't understand uh, where they picked up their their judio concern about circumcision <laughs> with me. <laughs> but, uh, I'm just oh, I'm God. sorry. I'm I'm just stuck <laughs> on something that's not important and that Tyler isn't even it's talking about. But it, but it's. It's my I penis, it goddammit. <laughs> it was just a sign that you were part of the Jewish clan. I don't
1: think it I never I didn't really think about these things. D- did oh, you God. know
0: that he would kill you if you didn't do it? No. Yes. No, where does it say In that? fact, he mm-hmm. almost killed Moses. I'm I'm not gonna go back and, and, and do the reading. Christians who are very familiar with their Bibles know exactly what I'm talking about, right, oh. Christians? Um so Moses uh, hadn't yet been circumcised at a certain point, and God was getting ready to kill him, and his wife intervened, uh, and and they got it done. No, this was a do it or <laughs> die kind of thing. Um, yeah, no, it's crazy. It's
1: it's oh, it's crazy. It can't even. So justify I
0: don't it. I I don't know what I'm missing. Um. The some, some, people, some people tell me some people tell me it's very important and so why was it why is anyone born with it i mean right it did we grow that foreskin because of sin w- were we not created with that foreskin so why did god change his mind and suddenly say yeah i don't like that a little bit after all
2: it's um it's It's a heap of arguments and evidences and improbabilities that finally piled up to the very gates of heaven, only to find the throne room empty after all. So it's not as though there was some singular fact or argument that falsified my Christian faith. And I still don't think that it's somehow demonstrably false or foolish or irrational or anything like that, Um, or anything like what many online atheists will claim. But I found the pile of objections just became so high and the sheer volume of explanations needed to dispatch them so great that I could not overcome them all, or at least the sinking feeling that the whole thing was a put-up job. In addition, many explanations were in conflict with one another uh, and with other explanations that were needed to hold other parts of the rug down on the other side of the worldview room. Or at least they caused tensions for other answers such that affirming both didn't seem satisfactory. For example, that actual infinities could not exist to defend God as the creator who created ex nihilo in the finite past, with the Christian conception of heaven as a potentially infinite set of experience, but for which God would know completely, which would be an actually infinite set. Or the contrast in answers of God being all loving and wanting all to be saved, then drowning all humanity in wrath. Here, I-
0: Okay, so I just want to uh, make an observation uh, right now, and I think it's going to play out throughout the entirety of this video. One thing that a Christian, especially a progressive Christian might say when they're hearing this is that his uh, objections are not really about God. His objections are about the Bible. It it's about Bible stories and how they depict God. And so um you know maybe Tyler has misplaced his um his his disappointment and disgust and disillusionment. Uh and so if he only had a different, more progressive view of the Bible, then most of these things would go away. So Tyler actually deals with this a little bit later in the video, but I, I still think there is some room for uh that observation that really what he's talking about is a certain understanding of the Bible in certain depictions of God. Not all Christians see God this way and see these events this way. So I just thought I would make that clear. Now that said, I think that Tyler is right; is talking about the God of the Bible exactly the way mainstream Christians think about the God of the Bible. This is how I thought and understood the God of the Bible. Uh, Sarah, I think the same was uh, true for you.
1: I probably wasn't aware of all the batty stuff, to be fair. It was just like, yeah, Yahweh's a little bit a bit stricter, but it, I wasn't aware of all the batty verses. And the the thing I don't understand is his job was apologetics. So it's kind of, he, he goes towards the faith and understands the faith through the eyes of apologetics where he's having to come up with or, or research the reasons why these things make sense. So I don't understand why they're coming up now as a, as a, these seem really crazy, these are Looney tune contradictions, and it's like, well, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's true, but that your job is to need to 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 work out or your your I don't know is this hobby or his actual job, but um, was to find ways around all this stuff. So right, but I don't that's... understand why it's it's, it's, it's um, a newsflash at this stage because for me, yeah, right, but that's most Christians that's... I don't think know this uh, how crazy some of the laws and things are and. Yeah. I don't uh, don't think it's a newsflash.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's a newsflash for him. I mean, he he knows about this stuff. He knew about this stuff the whole time. He just had counter arguments for these things. And so what he was saying earlier, I mean, if you just take – each one of these things in isolation. And this is kind of what the Christian would would do when they hear this. They will say, okay, this, I've got an answer for this. And then they'll move to the next one, this, I've got an answer for this. And I'll go on and on and on, taking each one of these things in isolation. But what he's saying is, you know, at some point, he couldn't take these things in isolation. All of these things accumulated. And the mountain of excuses he had to make by way of explanation mm-hmm. started to feel thinner and thinner and thinner and, until it finally was incapable of supporting what it needed to support. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's how uh, he would answer that. But he, he, he will get into a that norm- a little bit more.
1: But the difference between him and a say normal, regular Christian um, is that he knows these things from the outset, whereas okay. I discovered the cra- crazy stuff as I was deconverting it was like oh god wants to chop off the end of penises and blah 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 and this is the reason why yeah it doesn't sound so great but um you discover it as you're deconverting mostly you think jesus is love blah, 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 god is love and etc and uh he he beginning but i understand it becomes so so much of a mountain of excuses but for most people, it, they don't—they're not even aware of all these crazy verses in there because there's never any real sermons about the crazy, crazy stuff. I don't in there.
0: know. I don't know that that's the case. Um, I grew up with the crazy because uh, okay. I, I grew up a, a preacher's kid, and I think that uh, a large percentage of people in the church grew up in the church. That's why they are Christians and not Muslims. It's—it's uh, it's a product of where they uh, came from, and so you hear these stories as a child and yep. they are sanitized and normalized so that you you are trained to not even think of them mm-hmm. as as weird or unusual you know uh so you know once you once you get it fixed in your head that god is love and then you hear over here that he destroyed the entire world with a flood except for eight people who turned out not to be so good themselves um you have you work that into the narrative of God as love mm-hmm. you know you're not you 're not looking at that in isolation and thinking, Oh, that seems bad because it 's God, and nothing God does is bad yeah. and so what you 're yeah. doing is you 're working that into the framework of god 's love, and that's that 's mm-hmm. how you view these narratives. So um, let's, yeah, I mean, yeah, the Christians definitely know this stuff. They they know the broad brushstrokes of this stuff. I, I would say that the, the average boy, yeah. Christian, yeah. they know enough things that if they just looked at clearly, would be enough for them to walk away. But uh-huh. it's underneath this blanket of narratives, and and the blanket was came first. Uh, so
2: just kept thinking, okay. But if I, is a sinful father, and I can still love my children, even discipline them, but not punish them to the point of utter extinguishment, surely God, who is love, would be able to do that. Remember, God isn't just maximally loving on the biblical view. God is love. Whatever love is, is what God is. So even the creator-creature distinction doesn't work here, because God does not seem to get a special out on this one for being God while we're not. Because if I'm properly loving my kids by not punishing them to that degree, and that is what love is, then that just is what God is.
0: So I think this is an incredibly good point. And it's it's one of those standalone points that if Christians really thought about would be enough to deconvert them uh as as a parent it's never okay to kill your kid <laughs> It's just oh well, they did this bad thing, so I have to kill them. Not only does God kill his kid and his children generically as all of us as his children as punishments, he actually commanded in the Old Testament, parents to kill their children for various reasons. Very specifically uh, to a parent of a child who dared suggest they consider a different God, that the parent have no mercy and be the first to pick up the stone that crushes that child's head. And that's, that's God's command. Now, granted, a lot of Christians may not be aware of that particular verse, but they are aware that one of God's punishments, if you do not uh, please him, is that he will kill you. And and somehow we have worked that in our minds to be, oh, well, that's okay. Uh, Obviously you deserve to be killed if God kills you, but he's a loving father. And those two things live in the same head in perfect harmony
1: because you're not you can't even give yourself permission to even go there with those questions because you you are told straight away that your ways are not your uh, are not his way that there are good reasons for it and you don't know what they are and he's a just god as well and so you can't even to even to question those things and to start thinking about them you have to give yourself that first firstly that permission to do it which you're 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 not you're not supposed to have so the exit doors are shut before you even can Explore it in the outer world because that's the way it's created
2: So God couldn't be loving in a different way than us and in fact in a diametrically Opposite way of us because insofar as we love we just are Reflecting God more but here. I love my kids by precisely not Exterminating them even when they deserve some kind of punishment, but that's just an example and I'll get to more later I'll continue laying out some of the obstacles again, but I want to remind my audience that I'm not here giving all of the reasons for or against these objections. Remember, like in my last episode, I'm not fully interacting with these ideas and handling rejoinders or engaging the responses that could be given to them. I'm I'm simply going to handle these in more detail later, and I've thought about these things in detail over the years, so please, don't think that I'm just like ignoring them or whitewashing them. So for the sake of this episode, I'm simply laying a broad case for the kinds of reasons that led me to reject my prior Christian faith. In addition, I want to address a common accusation that I've received in places where I've started to discuss these issues recently, and that is people saying that I've become an atheist or I'm using the same arguments as atheists or atheistic arguments. Once again... I'm not an atheist. I believe there is one God, a creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, transcendent, spirit, immutable, assay, simple, and impassable, and even providentially guiding all of human affairs, living and active. I'm a theist, and a classical theist at that, through and through, and pretty unashamed about it. I'm not even a deist. So to say that I'm an atheist is not only wildly uncharitable, it's honestly just dumb.
0: Okay. Right. So what is he? What kind of God does he believe in? He says he's a classical theist. Um, so I, I looked this up. <laughs> I, I thought I knew what it meant. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, well, a classical theist is kind of like maybe a God of the philosophers, maybe with all the the omni characteristics uh, creator ground of grounding of all being uh kind of god without being a personal savior kind of god i so i, I was having trouble imagining the kind of god that he he believed in mm.
1: i was almost like is this some sort of idealism and i looked up whether a classical theist could be some sort of idealist as in you know the ground of all being type view and i couldn't uh, i can't say i in depth but i couldn't yeah there might be some parallels i just don't understand why you have to land there other than as a stepping stone because most of the problems are still there or the divine hiddenness, the problem of suffering just the point to god uh what he's actually He says, you know, he still thinks he directs our um, lives a little bit and providence and all that kind of thing. And I was just like, it's pretty much God, but just with the nasty bits taken away. So I didn't really understand how he landed there quite.
0: Yeah, I... um, Now, so let me say something that will surprise some, others it won't surprise because I've said it before. When I realized that I no longer was a Christian, I also still believed in God. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) despite the fact that uh, it's probably a kind of a loony position overall, it's a very natural place to be. Uh, You don't uh, necessarily, and I guess it's different for, for everybody. I think it was different for Andrew. He just kind of walked away all at once from from everything. But a lot of the people, most of the people that I've talked to who have deconverted, uh left in pieces, bits and pieces at a time, not all at once. And so uh yes, I, I realized that, you know, first there are certain Christian doctrines that were probably kind of minor that I believed in. I thought they were more important than they were, and I stopped believing those and then there were some christian doctrines that were more major uh and were important to christianity and i realized that i stopped believing in those but you know you could still hang on to some version of christianity and you know a few steps later okay i christianity that doesn't make sense to me i realize i don't believe it and i shouldn't call myself a christian but i still believe in god there there's you know lacking theism doesn't mean you lack god the jews believed in god they weren't christians so uh-huh. i i still believed in the god of the bible and that uh, you know and at some point i believed okay the god of the bible is real but he's he's a dick and so i can't worship that god and then came the well maybe the god of the bible isn't real, but maybe some version of God uh-huh. is real, and so I hung on to that for a little bit. And so it was—it was actually stages uh, mm-hmm. and stages before I finally said, "You know what? I don't. I—I I have no reason to even believe in any kind of God." <laughs> um, so that took a while. Um, so I—I I feel him and where he is right now, and I certainly don't want to minimize. Uh, where he is, you know. One one mistake that I hear atheists make when someone deconstructs and deconverts, you know, they're they're coming out in one of these earlier stages, and we hard bitten atheists say, "Well, you're <laughs> you're you're practically out the door anyway. Um, you're one foot away from uh, full on." atheism or whatever you shouldn't do that any more than christians should Mm. uh claim that it's some kind of phase no uh both sides are wrong here and so i don't want to uh minimize uh this stage of tyler's journey but tyler if you're listening i would say that there are probably some more stages of your journey that you're going to have to face at some point point. Uh, down the road, and um you know it, it is among all things possible that you can stay exactly at this place where you are in your journey and and that's fine, but a lot of us have been there uh because this is normal to come out still holding on to some form of 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 god belief, and it you know over time that gets shipped away. So I I just be curious to see uh how his journey progresses, but uh, please atheists don't don't make the mistake of 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 dismissing uh Tyler's theism uh in the same way that Christians dismiss his his lack of belief.
1: It's a good point actually that David because it's true We're, you know it's and and people's journeys don't end in the same place do they? they might as you say you might stay as a classical theist or become something else or deist or, or whatever and it will views overnight so um you're trying different hats on for size and for a little while you sort of think oh, i can get behind this idea and it's given you so much in your life that you are going to not let go of it in one go so um i just don't understand if a lot of the things he brings up i sort of think well that applies to any sort of god generally but yeah i mean the the Yahweh being a bit of a dick is probably the easiest one to give up on because it's just, it's so obvious when you see it that you're just like, this is idiotic. Progressives can come and help you with, uh, well, that was just the ancient people's understanding of the divine and it doesn't actually mean God was like that and they probably had it wrong and, but they, you know, that, that, there's an arc overall and that kind of thing. You can save those kind of views, um, which is where we all pass through a progressive stage at some point until we plop off the end sometimes, but where well, he might just end up somewhere in the middle who get i mean it doesn't matter
0: it's fine right it's it's his journey and yeah. um I, you know i respect that journey i respect people's journey when they're full-on christian right-wing nut job theists because <laughs> you know, i've been there too <laughs> i i have been as crazy as the craziest person that I talk about in the internet. So uh, I've been there, I, I understand that. And um, so I, I guess it's a little bit easier for me to just kind of take people where they are and um, you know rec- recognize their humanity and all of that. And also recognize that we change, we change, yeah. we grow. And you have no idea what you're going to believe 10 years from now, Sarah, neither do I. And neither do you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So
2: amen uh, to that. But I'm, but am I making the same arguments as atheists? Are they atheistic arguments? Well, I'm making the same arguments, but they're not atheistic arguments. I don't think that they're atheistic and I'm not an atheist. I don't think atheistically. I do now have some serious objections to Christian theology and the overall biblical view of the world specific passages, biblical theology, and so forth. And these objections are shared by theists like myself, deists, polytheists, agnostics, and atheists alike. Anyone who rejects these aspects of the Bible will have similar objections. But does that make them atheistic? No. And is there some kind of guilt by association defeater to my objections that can be validly levied by saying that you well know, that's the same objection that atheists give? I mean, not if you want to give reasonable responses that aren't just logical fallacies. I mean, imagine an atheist was debating with you as a Christian and the Christian used the Kalam argument for God as an example. Let's say you use the Kalam. Would it be meaningful that for the atheist to say, well, you're just giving an Islamic argument because the Kalam was first proposed by an Islamic philosopher? I mean, that would just be like a silly rejoinder. So, too, I'm giving objections to what we see in the Bible and theological inconsistencies, even if atheists also use the same argument. That simply isn't a valid defeater to say, well, that's just an atheistic argument. Okay, so with that out of the way, let me dive into a few more of the main reasons that I came to reject my previous Christian worldview. First, I began to notice a lot of inconsistencies or amalgamations that just became so messy to hold and to defend that they caused me more questions than answers. And often, the questions weren't of the, well, that's interesting, I wonder what lays below the surface of that variety, but were rather of the, okay, But how is that even coherent variety? I started to call these blessed inconsistencies, and examples are things like the Trinity, the hypostatic union. Jesus' teaching, which was very kingdom-focused, had a high emphasis on Torah-keeping, was very eschatological and very soteriologically underdeveloped, versus Paul's highly systematic very soteriological almost no mention of the kingdom and nearly torah rejecting theologized view of the gospel honestly the gospel of jesus in the gospels and the gospel of paul in his letters seem like they weren't even talking about the same thing sometimes
0: so i feel contractually obligated to say that this is exactly the type of thing that we are talking about on red letters Season two, you know where to go, patreon.com slash red letters. Contractually obligated. I wrote the contract, but still <laughs> obligation is obligation. Uh, but this is, uh, so uh, I remember a discussion late in season one with, um, Peter. Um, and, uh, I was, I was talking about how different Paul's teachings were from Jesus. And he was saying, well, you know, maybe there's a difference between Paul and Luke, but he didn't um, see a difference between Paul and Jesus. And so I I tried briefly to uh, explain some of this because I knew that I was going to be talking about this in season two. And so, um, you know, for anyone who is unfamiliar with the fact that Paul and Jesus preach a very different message in a lot of ways. Maybe just roll this back to uh, when he was just talking about that and give it a listen. Every bit of that is true. And the way Christians read the Bible, they don't recognize the differences. So they think that it just flows smoothly from Jesus to Paul and everything is 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 fluid? That is not the case at all.
1: In your denomination, do they even make much of a distinction between that? I mean, to us, it was all Bible. So it, whether Paul said it or Jesus said it, it didn't really matter. Oh no, wrong. yeah,
0: uh, Jesus, yeah. I, only, uh, Jesus, only Paul, Paul only on the same thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, same thing, same thing. So I just it's only on the way out. You only say, oh no, actually, there's Pauline. Pauline-ian, what, Pauline-ian, <laughs> um views and this, that and the other. You're like, what? Okay. No, I mean, again, he, he knows almost too much because of his background in apologetics, but most people wouldn't be overthinking this. They'd be like, Yahweh's Yo, batty, you know, there's lots of inconsistencies over it, Um, I, and also why he has to have labels as to what he actually is any more than you know, we're not, we're not Descartes, we're not Kant, we're not we don't have to work it all out. You don't have to have a label. If you don't worry about it, you don't you don't have to settle on theistic, classical, this, that, and the other. Just um, just be like, well, I don't know. It's fine. We don't have to know all this. So he's, he's overthinking it.
0: Tyler's about to rapid fire through uh, a few things, and I'll try not to stop every three seconds, but it's going to be really hard.
2: And the later general epistles didn't seem to fit either of them. In addition, I started having problems reconciling the Trinity. Again, not in the apprehension versus comprehension way, but in the, that actually seems logically incoherent way. Okay, and that here, I, I can't,
0: yeah, it is logically incoherent, but I would just go back because he's trying to say uh, that, you know, the trivial way that atheists object to the Trinity is is not valid, but I would say it is valid. Um, apprehension versus uh-huh. comprehension. So apprehension is just a way of saying, Okay, I know that this is a fact that is true. And then comprehension is I understand uh, how this can be so apprehension, I can turn on a light bulb comprehension, I don't know how it works. Uh, so yeah, I flip the switch. Uh, light comes on. I apprehend that stuff is happening. I don't comprehend it. So this is this is kind of uh, how Christians talk about the Trinity, and you know many of them land in a place where you don't have to comprehend it. You don't have to understand it. It's not understandable. And I would just say, let me stop you right there, brother, because at that point you are preaching a kind of doctrine where you're saying disengage your brain. And this is, this is a huge red flag when someone starts talking about apprehension versus comprehension. No, you should comprehend the things that you bet your life on. These, these types of um, beliefs. You, you should more than just accept faith statements about Trinitarian beings. If if you don't understand it, you need to be able to ask questions. And then if the answer is, "Well, you're human; you're not supposed to understand it," just shut off your brain uh, and nod along. That should be a big red flag to you.
1: Quite. I mean, you can study it for years and still think it doesn't make sense and you can't understand it. And uh, and yours is not to question, uh, or you can just pass over it like the atheists, as he suggests. Go, duh! That doesn't make any sense. Not not buying it. You can both you in the same place eventually. It's just how, to what degree you want to go digging into it. Um, It doesn't make sense, whatever. And even people who've studied it for years can't quite understand it. And that's not a plus. That's not, it's not necessary. It doesn't mean it makes it more valid. The fact it's incomprehensible. It just means it's incomprehensible. That's it. Right.
0: And Tyler, you know, he's going to lay out his objection to Trinity. And yeah, it's very intelligent. But it's not a better objection than... Yeah, duh, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so that is that is also a valid objection.
2: <laughs> and I don't mean that in the trivial ways that many critics of the Trinity would propose, like, well, if God is three persons, then you're saying it's three gods, and that's a contradiction. No. The distinction between one what and three whos seems entirely valid to me. I get it. So that's not the issue. But what dis what did and does seem problematic? Was the relationship between the three and talking about things like the eternal generation of the Son or the procession of the Spirit, but of which causes problems for the view. But then, if I don't accept those things like the Eastern Orthodox churches don't, then drawing a distinction between the persons becomes problematic, especially in light of Jesus' comments that he does come from the Father and he does send the Spirit. And all of those things cause huge problems for any meaningful conception of divine simplicity. Now, the open theist and the non-classical theist will agree and think that we ought to jettison classical theism. However, as I stated last time, I just think the best arguments for God just are arguments that require or at least entail something like classical theism simpliciter, and it is the mangled mess of Christian theology that seems to add the unnecessary problems with very little justification for them. Here, I would also state once again that during this time I was noticing that nearly all the arguments from Christians, theologians, apologists, and so forth that seem to be sound. I. I think that were or, or that were robust robust refutations of naturalism or positive cases for theism were just that they were positive cases for theism generally outside of something like the minimal facts argument for the resurrection and maybe the maximal argument but that seems to have other problems I'm not aware of a single sound or even interesting argument that demonstrates that Christianity specifically is true or even plausibly true
0: okay so this is an objection that uh lots of us make as well when arguing with apologists uh i tend to want you just say yeah 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 okay let me let me grant let me stop you right there let me grant whatever apologetic you're trying to uh do just just for the sake of argument just to have a little bit of fun I grant it all. Now tell me how this gets to the God of the Bible and Christianity is true. And they and they never can and they never do. They talk about it being a cumulative case in that first they have to make the uh you know the the simpler theistic argument that there is a God, but I'm I'm trying to tell them. I grant you that. There's a God. I mean, I don't I don't even have to believe it, but let's just grant it, accept that. Take me to Christianity is true. There is no bridge that ever gets you from apologetic arguments to Christianity is true. And I don't care how many scholars you ask this question. I've asked every one of them uh, that I could. uh, There is no bridge
1: but who says christianity is a thing anyway i mean it's not jesus that sets up christianity as such is it he's just he he says some wise sayings etc um and says he's the way etc but then it's it's man later on that just sort of you know sets up the church and the orthodoxy and 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 sort of garnishes it and calls it christianity it even be a thing at the beginning it's not i don't think jesus would recognize necessarily anything to do with the the church today or christianity it, itself to play the progressive part the card and what the hell by the way is the procession of the spirit
0: okay so uh, there was a lot of uh, rapid fire theological terminology yeah in in that and i i would just say uh play that back at half speed and set your internet to Wikipedia.
2: Unless one wants to admit things like appeals to personal experience or just appeals to historical majority, which I honestly get why those can be added as data points in a cumulative case. I just don't think they're enough to get me there anymore. So when I surveyed all of the arguments and evidences and data, theism just seemed unavoidable. And all of the conflict and problems came from the affirmation of Christianity. It's like if you have a house and every month or so, a fire starts in the house. And every time, without fail, the fire is started by the refrigerator in the garage. There comes a point where you just remove that refrigerator. You don't sit around and think, well, that refrigerator has been around for a long time and lots of people like it, so I should burn down the rest of the house and keep the refrigerator. Like, why would I go along with the open theist? burn down classical theism and keep the thing that keeps raising all the problems that just doesn't seem to be a rational way to go
0: okay and i i love this analogy you know he's he's way better at analogies than me in this analogy christianity is the old refrigerator in the garage okay but if you take away christianity aren't you left with Judaism? <laughs> don't you? <laughs> so is that better? I mean, uh, really, how do you just, you know, you take the Bible and you remove Christianity, and then what do you end up with then? It seems like you end up as a Jew. Is, is there another option? <laughs> or, or do you have to take some more stuff out? Because <laughs> I don't a think follow it's- of Jesus?
1: Because that's the other big thing people say they are without being
0: christians okay well i don't i think you've got a i don't think he identified the whole set of things that's causing the fire then because it's not just christianity okay. if you take christianity out your building's still on fire
2: now further friction arose around the biblical tension between emotion versus intellect and i talked about this previously on the one hand, God created us to be emotive creatures, and much of the Bible is a call to our emotions. It's really an emotional book, and that's fine. But then, when we are also told that the, the heart is desperately wicked and can't be trusted, when I started doubting and spoke with people about it, the responses I got were weird On the one hand, if I let my emotions influence my decisions or my thinking at all, well, then I was being emotional and I can't trust my feelings and your heart's desperately wicked and you just need to give in and, you know, fideistically trust in God. But on the other hand, if I just read the Bible, but I had questions and I tried to understand the theological or philosophical possible solutions— Well, then I was trusting the thinking of man and I was using worldly philosophy and all that kind of stuff. There's a kind of no-win view of the constitution of man in Christian theology that we should be emotionally less emotional and fideistically rational.
0: Okay. so Hit the uh, nail
1: on the head. Hit the nail on the head. We've (laughs) all been there. We've all tied ourselves in knots. It gets too tiring. It's exhausting. Give yourself permission to think. Your heart isn't wicked. Um, that's all you need
0: to know. <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> honestly, if you if you feel the love of Jesus in your heart, uh, and you feel emotionally moved to worship God, is your heart still deceitful and desperately wicked, or mm-hmm. or does it stop being deceitful and desperately wicked? By the way, he's he's quoting a uh, passage from I, I want to say Jeremiah. Um, there, your the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it is, um, mm-hmm. the, the full quote there. And so, um, you know, it seems like Christians want to have it both ways. Uh, your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked unless, uh, your heart is telling you to worship God and then it's trustworthy. Uh, so it is, it is kind of a catch 22. I don't, uh, I, it is exhausting, uh, I did go through the same struggle myself. Uh, am I am I supposed to be, you know, emoting my way through Christianity and faith or am I supposed to distrust all of that emotion and just go with the um the the informational approach from you know, this is what's in the Bible and this is how I should parse the Bible. The churches of Christ for for the record are very head based. Christians, mm-hmm. uh, we we tend to be very head based rather than heart based because we don't we don't trust all of that emotionalism. So I grew mm-hmm. up uh, very much that way, not trusting all that emotionalism. And when I saw other Christians who I thought were going to hell, you know, because they were other <laughs> uh, when I when I um, saw them, you know, it was easy to spot the problem. You're you're so emotional and mm-hmm. as a human you can't trust your emotions
1: no and the charismatics are a little bit the other side and they're very light on the theology side and they're a bit more on the emotional side it's all about it jesus talking to your heart and stuff whereas because i was a little bit more skeptical and not very um i don't get swayed by emotions too quickly like that that i you know i didn't work on me so uh i was questioning it a little bit but uh but yeah i i i mean i feel for him because he's obviously gone through that bit where you're just questioning everything and is this right and and this, it's when you've stepped back now now in years that i've kind of stepped out of it possibly a bit more and even just the questioning of it like he's doing is just you just realize how batty it is and how toxic it is and how uh, it's just it's so <laughs> Exhausting, and yeah. it's so not unnecessary. Just be, and don't worry about all this stuff. You don't need to have it all worked out, and you can trust yourself because that ultimately is all you've been doing all your life anyway. Yeah. Um, and you just haven't realized that you've put labels on it that it's God, and it's probably just been you. and Don't worry about it, and you've been doing fine.
0: So, it takes um, a long time to get there, though. Uh, yeah, it does, it does. You know, it. I, I certainly didn't get there right away.
2: Further. I started having a lot of issues with the simple fact that God acted and did things in the Bible, but just doesn't do it now, even though if he did, it would solve so many of the issues.
0: So he's going to make a very good point. And I just, I just you know, listeners wake up and listen to this point. you go going to sleep after this. But um, I've said this many times and I, uh, I have never, again, received a satisfactory uh, rejoinder from a Christian. God is so very active in mm-hmm. key situations in the Bible. I mean, he wants to leave it so that there is no doubt about his command, his authority, what he wants from you. Uh, you know, if you didn't believe, you know, he, he was very helpful in, uh, doing things, to help you believed when he called, uh, Gideon to serve. You might uh, remember the story of Gideon. Um, Gideon is like, uh, yeah, God. I mean, Gideon knew who God was. You know, he's like, Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh could you could could you give me a sign? <laughs> uh <laughs> and and then he was able to kind of devise his own test and God says, Okay, I'll do it, and God does it. And the next day Gideon is like, Yeah, can you give me another sign? <laughs> You know? he's, the, he's the fleece guy, isn't he? He's the one with the fleeces. <laughs> yes, yes, he's the fleece guy. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, can you I you remember another these sign. Um, and and God is very helpful. He's not upset at all. Uh, he gives Gideon as many signs as Gideon needs for Gideon to go off and do the stupid fool thing that God uh, wanted him to do. Uh, but somehow, G- God is not interested in being that helpful anymore. But I think um, I think Tyler says it best. So. I'll uh, i talk. Isn't
1: that because they have, I was always told there were different times because they haven't had Jesus yet. Yeah, but so. Jesus did
0: signs and wonders too. So well, yeah,
1: which which are written down and that you now have. So you know, what more do you want?
0: Peter and Paul did signs and wonders. <laughs> so. Well
1: if you go to the charismatics, they'll do signs and wonders, which is why so. you why we were the real ones and not you.
2: Kind of it's it's a kind of improbable silence <laughs> on God's part but in ways that we know he could and did act those ways before. We're told that on the one hand, we cannot expect to see miracles from God to confirm faith because then it it wouldn't be real faith or look at those people who had miracles in the Bible and they didn't believe or you cannot demand things from God. And those are the reasons given by apologists for why we shouldn't expect to see miracles. But think of the response to the hiddenness objection that if God was so present then he would somehow, then somehow we'd be forced into belief. And what God really wants is sincere faith, which to be honest, I don't know what that means. <laughs> Since, either. As I That's discussed nice before, I, I think faith in the Bible exegetically is a volitional act of trusting. It's yes, it's a, it's a reasonable thing, but it's, it's the act of putting your trust in something. It's the boarding, the plane, it's the getting married. I can't, Unsincerely board the airplane. I either board it or I don't. So apparently, God <laughs> being present and working miracles would not be a true or sincere. Yeah. <laughs> you me, uh, uh, park your uh,
0: internet connection to Wikipedia and look up Shotgun Wedding. <laughs> your faith.
2: But think about that. On the other hand, the central faith making claim of Christianity that sets it apart from all other religions. Just is the coming out of hiding incarnation of God Himself to perform a public miracle that is to be affirmed and attested by those who witnessed it. So, which is, are miracles not good for grounding real faith or are they necessary for grounding real faith?
0: Right. But it's, it's, um, it really is a, a crazy making idea when you think about it. So, if you think about, um, the time when Jesus shows His death wounds to the 10. There there weren't 12 at the time, and then Thomas wasn't with them, so there was only 10 the first time Jesus comes around. And he shows them his death wounds. And then later Thomas comes along and he says, yeah, I want to see it too. And Jesus gets a, a bit snippy uh with Thomas but he shows him the death, death wounds and he says yeah it's better for those who believe without seeing uh rather than you know people like you who believe because you see but i i always found that to be a bit un- incongru- incongruous does does jesus really believe that the apostles would not have believed had he not shown them the death wounds if so maybe they shouldn't have been his apostles <laughs> uh, because he gave them evidence to shore up their belief that he refuses to give the rest of us. So he says to the people that he likes, I will give you evidence, but to everyone else, I won't. And that just feels unfair. Uh, I, You know, if If evidence was good enough for them it's good enough for me if it's bad for me in my faith then it should have been bad for them too this this is what uh tyler is uh trying to say i agree it's crazy making
2: do miracles that reveal god make people have insincere faith because they're forced to believe and so god won't do those kinds of miracles or does god do those kind of miracles as the core tenet of the christian faith Despite that, some won't believe in the true faith because more people will.
0: So Saul of Tarsus never becomes Paul the Apostle unless God shows up and personally knocks him off his horse. That that transformation never happens without that.
2: You can't have it both ways. Or, Or think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They sold their land and then gave half the proceeds to the church. Half. But they lied and said they gave all of the proceeds. Okay, so Peter rebuked them and then God struck them dead. Now, did they defraud the church? No. Not really. Not it's at not all. like they stole from the church. They weren't embezzling money from the tithes. They gave a 50% tithe from a land sale. They just lied and said that it, they gave 100%. Now, is that dishonest and vain and maybe wanting to look more generous than they are? Sure. Worthy of being struck dead by God? I mean, I don't think so. And if you say yes... Then why does God not strike people dead today who not only lie about what they tithe, which I guarantee is a lot of people, but who actually defraud and steal from the church, who steal from it and use the church to defraud and further steal from the poor, ostensibly the very ones the church is expressly commissioned by God to care for, or who use the power of the church to protect pedophiles and rapists and such. I mean, imagine the faith that people would have in the church and the trust that they would have in the church and and in God and in the purity of the institution itself if God actually policed its borders today like he did in Acts 5. And why not? Well, the answer will be, You know, unavoidably, that in Acts it was the early church, and God was protecting it and establishing it with a sign at that time to establish the church. But okay, why stop? Why not protect the peace and the purity of the church and and the God given commission of the church that He gave in the first place? Today, I wouldn't mind hearing what aggressive what a progressive has to say about that because
1: whilst you can do the whole well it was the you know uh i remember some people saying to me well it's the old testament what what does that matter you don't need to worry about that it's there's the new covenant it's all new it's jesus blah blah blah. so you don't need to worry what the old testament says um so i'd like to hear what progressive has to say about the ananias and sophia story because um the that's, you can't sort of quite pretend that's that's Yahweh having a bit of a fit in the background because this is the new God and the new the new story with Jesus's love and so you know did that really happen or was it just a mis I mean probably poor old night Anani- and Anani- a sort of heart attack and they just attributed it to uh, uh, his lie or his stretching of the truth and uh, and nothing more than that but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I haven't heard any any apologetics on it for, for from a progressive on that.
0: So let me uh, direct your attention to contractual obligation, uh, Patreon dot com slash Red Letters, where I have brought this subject up a number of times, and there you can read in the comments no actual good responses. To this, <laughs> so uh, perhaps there is some place else, uh, where <laughs> where Christians are willing to engage this issue. I don't know if the amount was half. I, I I don't know that the Bible actually says what amount it was. They it says they held back part of the contribution, and so uh, I, I actually always got the feeling that it was more than half uh, that they gave. It doesn't matter. They didn't have to give any of it. Um, And so they did. So, you know, his point is well taken. Uh, You know, you, you give generously to the church and you're murdered by God. Or you molest children as authorities in the church and get promoted this is this is very incongruous <laughs> and 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 his point is why you know this is not me just slagging on the catholic church um you know mindlessly this this sort of thing happens in all the churches, let me let me just be clear about that it's I think it's happened in the Catholic churches, maybe worse uh maybe more publicly, maybe more costly uh in terms of lawsuits. but if you think that you're somehow safe with your Baptist preacher, you are not um and so you you shouldn't think, oh well you know it's it's safer over there than over there. I wouldn't park my kids um in either of the places, but the, the once again, the point that should not get lost here is if this is how God policed his borders, then why isn't it good enough for him to do so
2: today? And the faith that people would have, imagine the trust that they would have in the institution. Imagine all of the objections that would people would go away that the church is abusive and money, honey and greedy and doesn't care for the poor. I mean, all of that would go away, which is a lot of times reasons people give for leaving the church in the first place. Imagine, I moved into a new neighborhood with my sons. And on the first night, someone tried to break in. So I publicly beat and executed that person in the front yard for all to see that I was willing to do what it takes to protect my house, ignoring the illegality of all that. Imagine I could get away with it. But then I just stopped doing that. And every night for the rest of my time there, I let thieves and pedophiles come in and ravage my home and my family without stopping it like I did the first night. And the excuse that I gave was, oh, well, I was just establishing my house in the neighborhood when I first got there. After that, sin is sin. And I don't want to prevent the free will of my neighbors to choose to believe that I'm a good father to my family in the first place, or that I'm a good neighbor. Like, how would that be a good reason? How's that a good answer? Which makes me think of another story, by the way, and I've said this one before when I actually still was a believing Christian. This was actually before my loss of faith. I used this example for, to, to, to talk against people who somehow had this very watered down, genteel version of, uh, uh, of Yahweh in the Bible. But let me say it again now from my other perspective. Imagine that I also knew in this new neighborhood that one of my neighbors was a sociopathic sadist. And one day I see him out and about while I mow my lawn and I say, hey, Joe, how you been? Have, Have you considered my oldest son? And John says, oh, sure. Or sorry, Joe says, oh, sure. But you protect him so much. I just didn't try anything. Plus, he'd be strong because he knows you protect him. But then I said, "Ah, oh, no worries, Joe. I'm actually going to head out of town tonight just for the purpose of not being home. So you can come kill my entire, my son's entire family, all of his friends and classmates, burn all of his toys, burn it to the ground. By the way, if you want to come back another night when he hasn't completely rejected me, you can actually inject him with every virus and anything you want, make him as sick as you can. You just can't kill him. And it'll be totally okay because in a few years, as long as he doesn't curse me for not protecting him, I'm going to give him all the class. I'm going to give him even more classmates, more friends, more toys than he ever had before. I'm going to replace all of his brothers and sisters. So it's totally going to be okay.
0: Every Uh. Christian out there, no matter how little they've read their Bible, recognizes that as the story of Job. That's, oh, I that's... remember
1: when Joe made sense, though. Seriously, yeah. I'm, I'm almost nostalgic for that. Do you remember when you used to listen to that story? God killed everybody and like, yeah, that sounds good idea. He gives you much more back. That's really excellent. This is the, what a good God we serve. He's going to give you new wives and new kids, all brand new. Remember when that made sense, and then well, whereas now, for goodness' sake, we know it's from the fourth or the seventh century, or you know, between fourth and sixth century, century BC. We're talking about like really like ancient people. It's like it's one of the, it's got three authors. It's like it's uh, why does anybody ever think this is literal? yet that you have to take literally. I, I don't. I don't actually don't know what you get from Job anymore.
0: Well, honestly, you have to shut up. Even even barbarians back then. You know, but let's just assume a a lower state of barbarity than what what would have even been there. Even the cavemen would have heard this story in their grunt language and said, "No, that's fucked up, man." <laughs> right? Nobody nobody looks at this story and says, "Yeah, that seems right. That seems God." We God... did. We did in the twenty
1: <laughs> first century, David. We did I, it. I
0: know we all we all <laughs> did it. But this is with our minds utterly disengaged and wearing the uh this is what I was talking about earlier you you just have this um, you just have this uh this god love centered focus and you get uh-huh. that drilled into your head and then everything rests atop that exactly. foundation and so even the most horrible thing that this God does you see through a lens of. You, God loves you you, mm-hmm. s- you see how he offered his uh, good servant never done anything wrong to the devil you see God loves you, you, see, what you what's your problem you, you see mm-hmm. how God let Satan kill off Job's entire family and it they were so insignificant they don't even get names that it, no. it doesn't even, they're just, they're just non-player characters in this thing. <laughs> you see how God loves you? I, You know, like I said, the, it, any one of these things should be enough to get the deconversion done. <laughs> but it but should. that's not how faith works. Uh, and no. that's, that's not how our brains own faith uh, works. And all I can do is kind of mock some of these things heavily To to kind of cleanse myself Mm -hmm. of of ever believing this stuff and perpetuating this stuff because Mm I I was worse than the average Christian in the pew. I was the fool on stage. How many? The only time I ever preached
1: it was on Job. I'm just saying.
2: So, and I thought it was a good story. Yeah, you know, no, human.
0: It's, uh, look, it's a, it's a, a lot of Christians look at that as a lovely story, but once again, um, you know, this is your brain on drugs.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, not so like, any I'm
0: sorry, I keep, I keep I was, you off. I was going to say the only
1: thing I was getting from it is how Joe prayed to God in his suffering and turned to God, and that was what I was trying to.
0: Teach them. He the, was uh, already with God. I
1: know, but he doesn't blame God for his his terrible he, things. He doesn't turn do. to
0: God. He was with God the whole time. He was never not with God. I even know, but he even at his God. at his most wicked, if if you can just say, if you can pinpoint the, the point in Job's life where he was at his most wicked, he was way better than every other human on earth. He was, there was at no point that did he deserve any of this stuff all the way to the point that at the end of the story, God affirms that Job spoke correctly, (laughs) that he was an an innocent man. At the beginning of the story, God says, here's an innocent man. (laughs) Have you tried him? So uh, here's here's a righteous man. It's not a, here's a kind of righteous man. It's, here's a righteous man. This is the most righteous man around. Uh, so it but was this, never about this, some secret sin of Job.
1: No, no, no. But that's the point. What does a righteous man do? He turns to he to be in conversation with God, and he doesn't blame God, and uh, he doesn't, well, he does get a bit angry at God, to be fair. But... Um, I don't know, he doesn't, his wife tells him to shut up and stop being a fool and that God's, you know, above all this. And and that's what our reaction should be in the face of difficulty. That's what I got from the story of Job. But yeah, when you look at the fact that God just lets these terrible things happen to him, it's not so funny
2: when it starts happening to you. (laughs) ...of the word, likely none. But that just is the premise of the book of Job. Or imagine that I was a judge. And I claim to be the most fair and righteous judge. And that I do not judge the judge's sons or punish them for the sins of their fathers. Now, not that sometimes there are not natural consequences for their sin, right? Because apologists will sometimes say that. They'll be like, oh, well, you know, if someone's an alcoholic, then there are going to be natural consequences for their for their kids. I'm not talking about natural consequences. I'm not, I'm not talking about that type of thing. I, I'm saying, what if I, as a judge says, I'm not going to visit the punishment on the sons for the sins of their father, right? But then you find out one day that a man stole from me, and so I have him and his entire family executed. That's the story of Achan and his family. Or you find out that once a group of guys said they didn't wanna live under my household rules anymore, so I executed and burned them, their wives, their children, And all of the people in in their households, which, by the way, would have included parents and cousins and servants and so forth. And I buried a ton of them alive. That's the story of Korah's rebellion. Or that because one father sinned, I make the rest of them entirely sick and, 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 and guilty. And they are all punished criminals unless they repent. That's the story of the whole Bible. I could give so many examples of this, but the point is that there's huge sections of the Bible that just seem fundamentally at odds with the Christian view of the God who is love. Again, not that God is merely loving sometimes or he acts in loving ways, but that God is what love is, or rather that love is what God is.
0: So I um, I, I remember distinctly coming to a very similar conclusion before I completely shut the door behind me, which is that um, if God's actions in the Bible are what defines love, then uh, that's, that's not any kind of love that I it to be a part of. And I, I came to the conclusion, thinking that I was going to get struck down the whole time, mind you, that I am more <laughs> loving than God. Uh, I am more just than God, uh, because I would never consider doing, even if I had the power, I would never consider doing some of the things that God did, uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, and if I, if I did do those things, if I did have the power and, and behave like God, people would hunt me down, uh, because I was a tyrant. And in every day of my life, they would be trying to kill me <clears throat> and and rightfully so. But you put that God in front of Christians and they bow down. Um, I, I wonder how much of that is Christians bowing down because they think that God is loving or they're bowing down because they think that God is terrible and they want to appease him so that he doesn't smash them like a bug too
1: bit of both definitely and you are very just even with your biased moderator privileges
0: this podcast is over again think of the garden
2: (laughs) not the normal objections that we commonly hear about the age of the earth or why god would make knowledge punishable which i think there are good answers to but think about why god set up his creation how he did a lot of times christians seem to like conceptualize that god's just Dealt these cards, or they just don't think about it. They they you know, humans are sinful, or at least to be free, they have to have the option of sinning. And then once there's sin, well, the jig is up. It's all downhill from there until Jesus comes. But think about it for a second. Why? Why did God create the cosmos that way? He didn't
0: Why didn't you have this thought ten years ago? I I, See, I know I'm <laughs>
2: Thinking
1: of been telling him. He's like, you know, I'm not thinking like an atheist, but this is what we've all been shouting at him about. Just going, this stuff doesn't make sense. Stop it. I
0: know I just got on to you about this. <laughs> this is <laughs> I don't know why.
2: This, is, this has always been right there. It's very low like, hanging fruit. You have to create humans with a covenant head like Adam, such that when Adam fell, so did all of his posterity into guilt and sin and death. God didn't have to create covenant representation. God didn't have to create creation corruptible by human sin. So when Adam sinned, God decided to make it such metaphysically that sin impacted nature, corrupted human flesh, so that it's passed on, that there's a sinful disposition, there's a sinful nature, there's original sin, there's original guilt. However, your theological system wants to cast it, God made it that way. God chose to make all creation susceptible to sin. And so now it grows thorns and thistles and it makes animals carnivorous in response and roll out the carpet for death and disease and natural disasters and murders and genocides all in the wake of sin. God didn't have to make it so this that it, child cancer and diseases it. arose because of sin
0: okay go ahead
2: this is what this is what dawkins has been saying since 2004 and
1: people before him you know or 2000 oh. whatever the, the new the uh the horseman the four horsemen of the apocalypse or whatever that the um this has all been said before this is not news this is why it's so weird to think that this is your he was an apologist. This his job was literally batting this stuff back across. Um, so he was aware of it anyway, but it's all, it's all just, it's something must shift in people's minds. And I think that's what's happened to all of us is something just shifts one day and you're like, yeah, that no longer makes sense. It made sense. But say, you know, Job, Job, the Job story, it was fine. And then now suddenly, nah, I can't, I can't deal with it anymore. It doesn't make um, and I think something just must change, and I don't know what it is. And I think it's different things for different people. For him, for one, I remember you one time writing about the miasma of Adam's sin yeah. being le- left out or to get across the world, and that really just like made me think, "Oh my God, I've never seen." Of course, there isn't any event like that in history where you see this suddenly happen. So that really resonated for me and for him. You know, suddenly. He's- Adam being punished for everything all the way down the line is is bat- batshit crazy and and rightly so and and so it's just different. There's something will suddenly resonate with somebody when they just think, yeah, this is this is enough. I've got to stop now.
0: Yeah, it's it's a bursting dam uh, scenario. Mm. You know, one drop of water against the dam, uh, the, the dam doesn't even notice it you know, because it's a dam, it's made to withstand lots of water. And so these uh, atheist objections are like one drop of water or these inconsistencies in your own mind are like one drop of water. But at some point there's enough water so that the dam begins to leak and that leak becomes a flow and that flow becomes a burst and you don't have a dam anymore. So um, I, I I just think it's Kind of that, and once you once it starts leaking and flowing and bursting, you look back on all of the things that you defended, and you realize, yeah, that was that was not my finest uh, hour. (laughs) Uh, So uh, you know, I this this whole thing about um, uh, sin uh, being the catalyst for the fall of nature, so that we're now born with you know, childhood diseases and, and such, uh, you know, I in, in computer terms, uh, I equate this to a failure mode. So everyone who is watching this or listening to this right now is using a computer or computerized device and you have all suffered some kind of failure mode where an app uh, or, or application or process stopped working. And there are different ways that things can stop working. It can it can stop working gracefully. It put up an an error message which explains very detailed what happened uh, and how you can fix it. Uh, no one is familiar with that because that never happens. But that's that's one thing that could happen. Um, uh, and another thing that uh, happens frequently is that your computer, or your phone, just locks up. Just locks up. You can't do anything now. You got to unplug the damn thing or restart it. You got to custom- cause So that's a, that's a bad failure mode. So imagine a failure mode where an app, you know, spits up a hairball and the failure mode is your computer blows up, but before it blows up, it sprouts arms and it injects you with poisons and it uh, sprouts a fist and beats you in the face uh, and then it starts ripping your body from limb uh, uh limb to limb and then just before you die it bursts into flames and engulfs you and your house in fire okay at that point you're that's not a failure mode anymore that's just a demon <laughs> in your in your computer uh and what he is describing <clears throat> is a failure mode that does not fit so uh right humans do the thing that humans do. They have the ability to sin. And so it's inevitable given enough time. If they hadn't sinned, then they would have sinned later. They sin. So what is the failure mode to sin? Is it that, you know, they have to feel bad about what they did and they get a do over? No. Is, is it that God punishes them with boils for three months? No. Is it that God kills them on the spot and starts over with other humans and gives them a a new start? No. The failure mode for one person's sin is to uh, burn down the entire creation with some kind of miasma of sin and evil where we are now soaking in a fallen universe where sin becomes our very nature and we need some supernatural act to save us. This is not a failure mode, folks. This is a demon acting out.
2: Okay. Nothing is necessary about the outcome from sin that way. God could have just executed Adam, or he could have just quarantined off creation from the effects of moral uh, of moral decisions, or he could have started over. He could have done a whole host of things. There's nothing that necessitates that because Adam sinned, children would die of leukemia and malaria and starvation. Those aren't necessary correlates and on and on. The issues just from here, again, just mounted beyond measure. And I just couldn't, I could no longer justify paying the interest on that intellectual bill, let alone the principal payments. The interest alone on that became too high. The level of credulity needed to keep nodding along just became way too costly for me. Now, another reason, uh, sorry, I'm going to take a drink here.
1: Isn't, isn't the defeat to this reason, where you don't know... You don't know it can't be otherwise, therefore it's true sort of thing. That was the defeater I heard from certain apologists. Uh, it
0: doesn't matter. Yeah, I, that is a, it's a defeater that doesn't defeat anything. Exactly. Because if the um, if the inevitable conclusion is that humans are going to sin and create this terrible situation, then you don't create humans, right? Because the uh, the God in this case was already perfect perfection was reached love was reached he's a triune being so he could love himself (laughs) you know he could (laughs) receive uh you know the virtuous circle of praise and adoration through himself nothing is gained by creating humans in this world that is going to fall uh now what? Uh, at least one apologist uh, I know uh, would say and has said uh, many times uh, publicly, is that the utility of a fallen universe is the same as uh, God not creating at all. So God creating, God not creating would be a perfect situation, but God creating the world, the world falling, uh, many people suffering, uh, dying, most of its inhabitants uh, going to some kind of hell— uh, brings about the same amount of perfection <laughs> as if God doesn't say this create. In a straight face. <laughs> right. Well, I'm just. God. This is you ask. So just... this this is uh, in fact um, the answer. And This is the uh, you know even though I I don't think I would have gone all the way there. Um. I would have had to at least consider this as a possibility when I was a Christian, because you have to save God from the accusation of, you know, evil. And, you know, by the time I seriously asked the question, if sin is the natural consequence, why create at all? You know, I, you know, in, in sometimes uh, Christians would ask as a kind of a defeater, would you rather not have free will? You know, would you rather just be an automaton or would you rather have free will? Well, I'd rather be an automaton and live in heaven and happiness. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if your free will will send you to hell, if your free will gives you a 50, 50 chance of going to hell and the, and the chances are much higher (laughs) than that. But even if it was, a mere 50 50 chance of going to hell i'll take the automaton state thank you (laughs) so um no there's there's no as near as i can tell there's no logical reasonable way uh to go at this and and have it make any sense
2: was just that I could no longer sustain the massive ad hoc Gordian knot tapestry of the attempts to reconcile various biblical passages. It's it, it just because too much it just became too much to keep all the bumps in the carpet down. It kind of reminds me of that funny uh, quote in the Christmas story when Ralphie's narrating about his old man he says, in the heat of battle, my father wove a tapestry of obscenity that as far as we know is still hanging in space over Lake Michigan. I love that movie, I love that quote. In this case, it's not obscenities, but apologists do have to create an obscenely complex and overly ad hoc tapestry of explanations to try and dance around all of the problems in the Bible, to keep it all together, all the contradictions, the tensions, the textual changes, the theological issues, the transmission issues about if we even have what the text is, uh, if if, if uh, what the text says Jesus said is actually what Jesus said, which sometimes seems impossible because what's said in Greek only makes sense as a Greek pun wouldn't have made sense in, in, in the Aramaic or vice versa. So, okay, I plan to have several episodes on these, but let me give some examples of all the different facts of all the different stories around... Uh, sorry, let me, let me give some examples, such as uh, different facts around the different stories of Jesus's death and burial and resurrection. Here, I agree with Bart Ehrman that often apologists will have to create a whole new gospel amalgamation that actually does violence to the original beauty and theological significance of the original gospel and, and its original author, in order to try to weave them all together. That is, to reconcile some gospel narratives together. The apologists actually have to diminish the genius of the original gospel author.
0: Just an example that he doesn't give, but I think that Bart Ehrman uh, does give, the seven sayings of the cross. Uh, You can can hear many sermons on these seven sayings of the cross in churches, you will hear them as Easter approaches. And if you are not studious, you will believe that there were seven sayings on the cross from Jesus. You will just assume that it is there somewhere. Nowhere in your Bible is there seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Not one account (laughs) of uh, the story lists seven sayings of Jesus. There's some where he you know, says this thing here, and he maybe says a couple of things uh, in another account. Uh, but over here, he doesn't say any of, any of those things. He says this different thing, which is a little bit contradictory uh, and hard to uh, combine with that other thing. And then over here, he says, and so what you do to get the seven sayings of the cross is you just smash them all together, and you create an
2: entirely new account seven sayings of the cross. Okay. A good example of this is when we talk about what day and time Jesus was crucified in Mark. It's clearly the morning of the Passover at about noon, but in John, it's about 9am the morning before on the morning of preparation. Now Some apologists will try to smooth this over, and they'll say that Mark is talking about the Passover. But what John is talking about is the day of preparation for the Sabbath, not the day of preparation for Passover. So they could actually be talking about the same day. That is, if Passover fell on a Thursday night to Friday morning, that would be the day of preparation for the Sabbath. So it could be the same day. The problem is that for John, The reason why he wants Jesus to be crucified on the day of preparation of the Passover is precisely because of the theological imagery of Jesus being the Lamb of God, the scapegoat sacrificed and butchered on our behalf. Well, the significance is only attached to the day of preparation for the Passover and not the Sabbath more generally. The Lamb of God theme barrels through the entire Gospel of John, starting with multiple statements of John in the first chapter, such as 129, where Jesus being the Lamb of God is specifically tied to Jesus' taking away the sin of the world, a clear illusion and foreshadowing of his saving death. This is repeated in 136, and so when Jesus is crucified, it's part of John's theological genius that he ties it to the slaughter of the lambs on the day of preparation for the Passover. The Sabbath is brought in 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 the statement of John not to explain Jesus's crucifixion, but rather why his body had to be removed and buried. And notice that even if you buy the rather ad hoc explanation to reconcile the differences in the days, they still get the hours wrong. One says 9 a.m., one says noon. Now, is that a huge problem? No. In fact, neither would be a big problem if one got the day or the the time wrong. I mean, if you ask, or, or, or if I ask you 30 years from now about what day of the week or the exact time of day something happened, 30 or 60 years before that I wouldn't blame you or think you were lying or Making it all up just because you may get what day of the week or hour it was wrong. Okay.
0: I've got to stop you right there Tyler um because Christians academics tell us that these people had supernatural memories I'm sure that you've heard Jonathan McClatchy talk about the supernatural memories that uh, that these people had. I mean, oral tradition could be passed on. These long-form writings could be passed on verbatim from generation to generation uh, with nary and error. And so which is it? Uh, did people forget critical times and days? Or did they have supernatural memories and get it exactly right, and we just have contradictions? You can't have it both ways.
1: And there's lots of ways to, again, he's an, I mean, you can you can pick and choose whatever um, explanation you want, like it's the Essene calendar or, or whatever to make the dates fit, or you can, yeah, it's not, this isn't news that that <laughs> it's on different days in the Bible, but you can make it fit, and if that's literally been what you do as a living then why why is this news it's why is this like major to the faith collapse because you this was all known surely from working as an apologist i don't get it that's what i don't. it's all these are kind of fairly basic um uh things that get brought up as as arguments that apologists have been batting away for, for donkey's years so
0: I don't get it. I'm still going to stick with defending him. I uh, In the Churches of Christ, one of the weird, quirky uh, things that many of uh, the churches are known for is that they only use uh, a cappella music in church and worship and not instrumental music of any kind. Um, so that's something that I used to believe naturally. But as I grew into faith. I mean, I'd heard all the arguments. I knew all the arguments. I taught all the arguments. I preached all the arguments. I I knew them well, but somewhere in my mid to late teens, it just started to ring hollow. Uh, You know, even though I knew the arguments at some point, I realized that there was something kind of ad hoc about those arguments. And there were, you know, questions like, why would God suddenly care? Uh, about instrumental music, because back in the Old Testament, uh, he was very happy with uh, being worshipped with trumpet and such. You know, they they had a full-on marching band uh, going on uh, there, and and God was happy with that, and that somehow at the end, uh, you know, in heaven, there would be music and, you know, uh, things like that, but but somehow during this era, God really doesn't want uh, you to sing "How Great Thou Art" with the accompaniment of a piano. You know, and it, it, at at some point, I don't care how many ad hoc explanations you know, you just sit down with that thought for a moment, and the ridiculousness of it overwhelms you. so so you're thinking how could anyone have believed it in the first place but I'm telling you I grew up with it and I could have argued I did argue and defend it Um, you know I I taught it I baptized people Uh, so uh, I I was pretty good at defending this sort of thing but yeah at some point you have a moment of quiet you have your glass of Kool-Aid and you're you know you're you're doing some piano practice because I played the piano at the time and you know I practiced songs that I knew which was church music and at some point you got to ask yourself am i am i sinning <laughs> I'm just I'm just practicing the piano and Amazing bass is a simple tune I can practice this. Am I? What if I don't sing while I play? Would that be okay? <laughs> you know, at some
1: technicalities.
2: point, technicalities,
0: right? There's you know the 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 wall that uh, of that's holding back all of this ridiculousness just breaks at some point, and you realize, yeah. No.
2: Or different than someone else that I asked the same question to. But the reason why this is important is it goes to the broader issue of the kinds of explanations and contortionary circles that biblical apologists are willing to go through. And there's no end to these. For example, the fifth plague of God on Egypt killed all of the livestock of the Egyptians. But... The final plague killed all the firstborn of the livestock, but they all died. So, how is there still livestock?
0: So, this type of objection that he's making is easily swatted away by Christians by, well, certain kinds of Christians by saying you're reading the Bible too literally. Yes. You see, this is the problem when you read the Bible literally. If you read the Bible like Randall Rouser, uh, he would say you know this is just kind of uh jock in the locker room uh, language yeah we slaughtered them all well you didn't slaughter anyone you didn't slaughter you know you didn't even defeat all of them but you know you won your battle uh, no matter how narrowly but then you you get this kind of jock exaggeration and that's how they wrote in the old testament and so when it says you know he killed all the livestock it wasn't really all the livestock and that's why there's livestock later Like this is you know but this is how christians think and this is how christians uh are objecting to tyler today Uh, And they would just say, well, you know, you've run into one of the serious problems with literalism and you just need to read the Bible the way I do.
2: Paul tells us in Galatians that at his conversion, he didn't go and consult any of uh, the apostles for three years. And only then it was Peter and James, Jesus's brother. In Acts, he goes right away to them and meets most of the apostles. So which is it? What about the cause of suffering? Is it that the righteous suffer to be Christ-like? Is it that the unrighteous suffer as God punishes them? Is it that the righteous suffer while the unrighteous prosper? Is it that the righteous suffer as a means of God to bless them? And so on. Well, it depends on what passage you read. Does God love and want all to be saved? Or does he hate some and hide the gospel from them? Depends on what passage you read. Does God hold the sins of the Father against his children or does he not? As i presented above depends on what passage you read and on and on now this does not mean that i think all of the objections made against the bible are good many of them are dumb really dumb when someone says the bible cannot be true because it says bats are birds i still roll my art my eyes so hard i might pull a muscle
0: okay but once again this is the problem of you're reading the Bible slightly less literally than the person to your right. (laughs) The person to your right is reading it a little bit more literally. And they're looking at you as if you're the liberal, right? And you're looking at the person to your left as if they're the liberal. Uh, This is once again, though, kind of a blind spot with, uh, with Christians. I I think I mentioned that the church of Christ has like five distinct flavors of its denomination. Um, And I often talk about the main line or the mainstream churches of christ and i've had uh some significant experience with at least four of the uh of the distinct lines none of them really recognize the other and your idea of where the line of uh right reading of the bible and progressivism just happens to be where you are in that line you know no matter how conservative you are there's someone to the right of you who says you're a liberal <laughs> so this is so true this is this is kind of where what he is dealing with right now yeah okay bats or birds well you're just reading the bible too literally he says and the person who is right is saying you're not reading it literally enough
2: like it's just dumb and this also doesn't mean that there are not ways to get around or reconcile these conflicting passages someone who's creative with sufficient motivation can reconcile any two texts together no matter how absurd or how ad hoc the explanation is. So I'm not saying that there's no proposed answer or solution to them. It's just that after years and years, it started to look like a big put-up job. And while some explanations could be possible, a lot of them are just really, really bizarre and really ad hoc and really implausible, and when you start putting those things together, you start putting bottomless buckets inside of bottomless buckets inside of bottomless buckets and expecting it to hold three buckets full of water, there's a problem. The mountain of ad hoc explanations just became too big for me to continue to see it as an intellectually honest exercise for me to continue. Now, before going into my final section, I want to answer um, and and give uh, a response. I want to answer a kind of response I've gotten to these concerns. And that is that these really are only problems for a certain kind of Christianity Um, the kind that holds to some manner of inspiration or inerrancy. And that rather than rejecting Christianity, I could just go progressive and deny those. Now, I'll admit that is possible, but there's a problem. I just think progressive Christianity is vacuous and self-serving and so wildly subjective that it really is no better than just inventing my own religion because that's really what it is or at least what it seems like to me.
0: So I landed in the same place, except unlike him, I sojourned in progressive Christianity for a little while uh, before leaving the door and so he he apparently did not we still ended up reaching the same conclusion <laughs> so i'm not i'm not entirely sure um how progressivism ends up feeling like a safe haven i guess if if you are your 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 psychological makeup is that you need some kind of god you need some kind of supreme being um And you need that God to be bigger than you and the grounding of love and so forth. Progressivism is a nice, safe place to be. But I wasn't looking for a safe place to hide my God. I was looking for the truth. And for those who care more about truth than security, progressivism ends up being a very temporary stay. Did you ever uh, give progressive Christianity a try?
1: Uh, probably once I'd left, so no, in a way. I suppose I just think that's the only way to to view it rationally these days is to think, well, the Bible's a text to kind of wrestle with, to kind of use as a pointer. Um, yeah, so it is a subjective, as you say, but... Um, it's to give you some ideas, some lessons, some sort of Aesop's fables almost for life lessons. And um, so it's the only way that any form of Christianity makes sense to me. But is it even progressive? I don't know. I can't get a handle on whether these kind of views were seen before. We, we might be calling it progressive when actually uh, there may have been periods of time when this was kind of the way the Bible was used because this whole literalism thing is more of an American 19th century invention. It's not, it's not the way necessary the Bible has been seen at all in the past, but I don't know enough about it to honestly comment, uh, knowledgeably, but no, they were, um, they were
0: yeah. pretty literal. Um, a few hundred years ago. I mean, we didn't invent, <laughs> we didn't invent, uh, invent right-wing, uh, li- uh, uh, I'm sorry, literalism. Um, that's, that's been around for a while. If you just think about the issue of hell, uh, just as a, for instance, I don't want to get too sidetracked on there. I know that this is where the comments are going to live because I've mentioned it and there you go. Uh, but the issue of hell, people thought that hell was a fiery eternal torment mm. since, you know, a very, very long time. I, I, I'm i tempted to say from the beginning, but it's hard to even know where the beginning uh, was when it came to Christianity. Um, but, you know, since well, so very one of early, early on. The
1: forefathers was once a, a universalist or, or whatever. Well,
0: But universalism has been around for a long time, too. So yeah, the, the mistake yeah, exactly. that a lot of uh, we literal hellists make is to say that universalism is the new thing. Well, neither one of them are particularly new. But it's, it's also a mistake for universalists to say that the uh, vision of literal hell is a new thing either. I suspect the literal hell thing is older. Uh, and it is it has certainly been the minority view, I think, for the, the longer period of time. But if, if we're just trying to find issues that um, showed how people thought about uh, the Bible and whether it was literal or not, uh, literal has been around, you know, for a very, very, very long time. Uh, another example would be uh, six day, literal six day creation. Well, there had been those uh, in antiquity who didn't think that that was literal. But it seems like we have had a longer time with a majority of Christians and other religionists thinking that it absolutely was literal. So um yeah, we didn't we didn't invent literalism here in America and here and now. It's been it's been going on for a while. It's just maybe a little bit trickier to say whether um a conservative literalism is the oldest form. Now uh, I didn't mean to spend this much uh time on it, but I, I will say that There are reasons to believe that literal fundamentalism is the oldest form. And I would say that this is true because this is how all religion works. All religion starts off at a fund in a fundamentalist stage and often gets more fundamentalist before it gets progressive. Uh, As time goes on, and there is more distance between the creation of that religion, you know, people have the opportunity to believe different things, that, you know, maybe God wasn't literally talking to those people, you know, by by revealing secrets out of, you know, in golden plates or, you know, from someone sticking a head in the hat. Um, you know, maybe that wasn't so. Maybe God really didn't tell Abraham to cut the tip of his dick off. Um, you know, those thoughts come later. They don't come earlier so we know that they were literalists because they were chopping their dick off <laughs> so that's how you know <laughs> that literalism reigned <laughs> right? uh, abraham moses uh jacob these were not progressives <laughs> so and and whoever wrote their stories were not progressives so um this is true with uh all religion you know is islam Uh, is, you know, very, very literal, very, very right-wing, very, very fundamentalist early on, a a religion of war. And then it became, over time, a progressive religion of peace. Uh, So this is just the way, the normal way of religion. And so I, I do tend to believe that this is, Christianity is no exception. It would have started off more fundamental just like judaism did and you know we we loosen up from there sorry about the digression i'm not editing it out
2: i get to pick and choose which verses i like which ones i don't i can make them mean whatever i mean to hell with context i can make them mean whatever makes me comfortable god's love so anything that i think is mean or uncomfortable or i don't like i just cut those out of the bible except for Jesus, who I then would have to completely reimagine in my own image to make him more palatable to me personally in the 21st century. But then that would be different morally to those who did it in the 16th century, and those in the 18th century, and those in the 24th century, and so on. So it just strikes me that the progressive impulse today is just wildly Western, often really American, somewhat narcissistic, and culturally tethered to be completely honest. That is, I don't think highly enough of myself to think that I can create my own Christian religion in my own image. It seems to me the only Christianity worth believing and and worth actually having some type of commitment to would be a crunchy, old-timey, robust Christianity of the historically orthodox and theologically consistent uh, variety that takes the Bible as objectively inspired revelation from, from God. Without that, I don't even know why I would worship God or Jesus, because I don't know why Jesus would have had to come and die on the cross, or why he would have to come again, or why there would be judgment, or why I read the Bible at all at, at, at that point, to be, to be honest, because I can make it whatever I want. So in the same way that I think views like open theism or universalism are just so utterly untethered from the text and so theologically incoherent and hermeneutically irresponsible, and so I could never see them as a valid alternative, so too progressive theology also just has no appeal to me at this point. Now, the next two objections, which I'll get into, are things that I did not come to believe were demonstrably false, but I just found that um i just I just found that the justifications for them were far weaker than what I had previously thought and were largely faith commitments in order to really remain consistent in other areas
0: and this answers the question that you keep asking why didn't why didn't you leave sooner um you know but these these thoughts happen as we grow and mature, and uh, you look back on the reasons that you believed and you realize that. You know, maybe, it, you know, the reasons weren't as good as you thought, you,
2: as no. you once thought they were. So what are they? First, the resurrection. Okay. I found arguments for the resurrection uh, that were made were a variety that I mentioned above where they committed a kind of Mott and Bailey fallacy in which they sought
0: to stop right there. Uh, did you know what a Mott and Bailey fallacy was or did you look it up? Be honest.
1: Neither. Well, I didn't know what it was, and I didn't look it up. I just assumed it was one of those. I I understood what he meant from the context afterwards.
0: Yeah, so um, to oversimplify – by the way, I looked it up. Um, Okay. To oversimplify (laughs) these fallacies, I don't know, man. Um, It's the type of argument where you try to prove – a relatively defensible thing. And let that also try to use that to also then prove a less defensible thing. You know, uh, an an example would be like, uh, the the writers of the Gospels uh, got uh, locations and distances and geography. Uh, largely correct. It's the New that,
1: York Superman uh, fallacy, isn't it? That just because New York is described correctly in Superman, that doesn't mean that uh, Spider-Man, which exactly is. that's um, that is that is a classic
0: yeah. Martin Bailey um, right fallacy. Um, so yeah, the, you get you get these you know some of these details in the Gospels correct, and therefore these are reliable historians who you can trust when they start uh, babbling nonsense. Um, so just wanted to, I wanted to put that out there because that the first four times I listened to this, I, I assumed that I knew what it meant by context, but I realized I didn't and I needed to look it up and I wanted the audience to at at risk of mansplaining to make sure that, uh, everyone understood that one
2: to demonstrate some uncontested fact like that the Gospels were historically reliable broadly on things like names and places. But then they tried to squeeze some other kind of supernatural or miraculous juice from that, that therefore all the miracle claims are true or the resurrection claim or the theological statements are true. Or they would move from the Gospels being early to therefore they're reliable on uh, on claiming Jesus rose from the dead. This kind of Mott and Bailey fallacy was pervasive in pretty much all cases that I saw for the the reliability of the scriptures and in some of the cases for the resurrection, not all. The minimal facts case for the resurrection specifically, like those from Habermas, Lacona, and Craig, seem sometimes to commit the same error, not always. But what I found interesting was that even maximalists like McGrew would point this out. So, this isn't some kind of super skeptical claim made by the unbelievers. But <clears throat> then, what about McGrew and McLachie's maximal case? Well, in that, in that regard, it's hard for me to see how they aren't just begging the question when they seem to simply presume the theological and supernatural reliability of the text as a basis for the argument to go through. Now, again, I'm gonna have full episodes interacting with both minimal and maximal fact uh, views. he's
0: uh, he's almost done. Let me just uh, use this as an advertisement for uh, Matt and Andrews still unbelievable. They recently uh, did a show uh, debating Jonathan McClatchy. Uh, who was just mentioned here, and since they recently did that, that show should be out sometime in September because they are really slow at getting them out. <laughs> but, as a, as a, uh, but then again, they're very careful uh, at editing and you know trying to put out a good product, whereas me, when I do a show, um, I get it out the same day, warts and all. <laughs> so look out for that one. Uh, if I uh, remember to do so when it comes out, uh, I'll link to that, or if someone else sees it, uh, be sure to link to that. Uh, I think that Jonathan has been on their show a couple of times, and I've had one occasion uh, to speak with Jonathan myself, so Uh, still unbelievable, a lot of good content there.
2: So please don't think that this one paragraph summary uh, interaction with them is my flippantly hand-waving them away. I've studied these for years. Again, I'm simply stating the variety of intellectual challenges to my prior Christian beliefs. That all started cropping up at the same time and culminated in my in my deconversion. Okay, the final big category that caused me issues was the atonement. Now this one is a bit more complicated, and this may have been one area where reform theology may have played a role in my deconversion, but only indirectly. And if when if I'm honestly think about it, since there were other views are more problematic and less ed- exegetically supportable. That therefore, even when I deconverted uh, because of this issue or part of it, and it was in the shape of reform theology, I probably would have de- deconverted sooner and just in a different shape had I been convinced of some other view.
0: Okay, so one other small interruption I'm going to make here. This is a plea to Brian I., and uh marvin you know I'll, I'll make this plea to both of you uh so we get a lot of terms like reform theology classical theology open theism uh arminianism molinism uh would one or both of you just uh take a gander at doing a brief bullet point explainer of all of these things in the comments so that people can follow along and know what the heck he's talking about at any given time. Thanks.
2: <laughs> and again, to be even more fair, this may not be entirely a reform problem, but it could be an Augustinian or even just an orthodox problem. So it's it may not even be accurate to say that this is a reform shape issue, but I did find that the consistent proponents of the views, like the ones I'll mention, were primarily Reformed because they were the ones that I found to be the most academically robust and consistent. Now, i put out some posts on my social media in the past month or so challenging the analogies that people give to try to overcome questions about salvation and judgment. For example, the problem of the analogy that salvation is like a present and you only experience the benefits if you choose to open it. Remember, I'm going to go into this in further episodes. But basically, the issue I have comes from the problems that arise when we ask whether or not Jesus accomplished salvation or if he merely made salvation possible. I think that it's clear from the Bible that the biblical authors believe that Jesus actually did accomplish the atonement on the cross, that he really did take our sin, paid the penalty due to it, and actually propitiated or turned away or satisfied all of the wrath of God due to the sins that he paid for. So my first issue was that I just don't think that I could rationally accept a view as biblical that held to a kind of escrow or provisionist view of the atonement. That Jesus paid the price in general and in, a, in an abstract way, and that his blood is held in some kind of celestial escrow that we can draw on when we believe. Those views are just outside of what I think is exegetically responsible. It also seems to me that some form of penal substitutionary atonement is clearly taught in the Bible. That the view of the biblical authors is that Jesus was the substitute who died in the place of sinners and who took the punishment upon himself.
0: Yeah, so I have learned to stop using words like clearly and exegetically Mm -hmm. responsible when talking about the Bible. Because what you're, what you're saying, and you know, whether Tyler intends this or not, what's actually being said is if you don't believe this, then you're not being reasonable. You're not being exegetically responsible. You're not looking at this in a uh, proper and appropriate way. And so the reason you disagree is because uh, you are not being responsible with the way you read the Bible. That is um, how I thought as a fundamentalist, Uh, And it's how I thought even after I left the faith, and it's only been recently, that I've been able to think in other ways. Uh, So I just want to make it clear that just because I read the Bible a certain way now doesn't mean that I've got the only or even the right reading of it. And I do not dismiss other people's uh, opinions and readings of it. Simply because they have a different reading. There's, I, I think there's largely no way to know what there, any given there, author thought at the time.
1: Exactly. There should actually be a law that says you can't put the word the Bible clearly says in a sentence. They shouldn't be words that ever go together because yeah. there's no such thing. And I think he says, oh, you know, clearly it's penal substitution. Well, there's plenty of people who will tell him clearly it says quite the opposite. Right. The whole problem. And they both think they're completely right about the way they're, they're viewing it, which is actually my major argument for believing that nobody really knows. Um, and so they all think they've got the, the, the one way of seeing it. Um, so uh, he's right in the sense of the progressive way. You can sort of pick and choose what you want, but but you genuinely can because there's so yeah. many views out there that he, you just take from the buffet whatever you want.
0: Yeah, and honestly, if if it is clearly one way in the Bible, then what are you saying about people who have a different view? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have to be saying one of two things, neither of which you really want to say. Thing number one, they're insincere when they read the Bible. Thing number two, they're stupid. I mean, you you got two choices, and there really isn't any nuance. If it's clear, mm-hmm. if it's obvious what is being said— You either purposely don't want to know or you are mentally incapacitated so that you can't know. Mm. So it's, you know, for that reason alone, should probably avoid things like clearly the Bible says.
2: (laughs) Make it law, make it law. (laughs) If only. (laughs) He died in their place and procured their salvation then on the cross. The the biblical authors viewed him as the actual savior of his people, not a potential savior of a faceless group. Now, other views of the atonement may be correct, such as a moral influence view or a government view or a Christus Victor view. But I take it that those views would be true in tandem with the penal substitutionary view. They don't undermine it or replace it, but they augment it. That the atonement in the Bible may accomplish more than the substitutionary view but it doesn't accomplish less than that that it may be more than a legal or a commercial transaction but it isn't less than that and so it seems that for those for whom Christ died forgiveness and the turning away of god's wrath for sin has been accomplished already okay so then what well why then do any not well, sorry why then do any who do not believe Suffer wrath in hell. It seems to me that one must commit themselves to either some kind of universalism, or a limited view of the atonement, like what we find in Reformed theology.
0: However, so the limited view of the atonement. Once again, this this may not be familiar terminology to you. It makes perfect sense if you're a TULIT Calvinist, which um, which uh, Tyler used to be. So uh, he's he's speaking from that uh, perspective, but uh, this is one of these things that I've also kind of recently come around to. Um, I, I don't believe the Bible teaches it, but the, the question is why not universalism? Um, why shouldn't it be universalism? So he's going to talk about uh, that a little bit uh, as it comes to an end. Love to have uh, a little bit of discussion about that. In the comments,
2: if universalism is true, then it's unclear on how we should read huge sections of the Bible. So Christianity may end up being universalistic, but biblical Christianity is not. And again, see my comments above about why I think the only type of Christianity worth believing is biblical Christianity. So I'd have to give up the Bible, uh, and and I uh, sorry, I'd have to give up what what uh, the Bible I thought on that view anyway, which I mentioned above, would just be a view that isn't appealing and would feel like throwing out the inspirational baby with the atonement bathwater. Now, I'll talk more in later episodes on universalism and why I would reject it, even if one is willing to reject the Bible. But for now, again, let it suffice to say, that it seems to me that the only kind of Christianity worth believing is the one that does have some kind of significant revelational claim that does not turn that very same revelation into kind of an incoherent, subjective wax nose. But what about the other side? What about the reformed side? The
0: waxed nose. Wikipedia is your friend.
2: Limited atonement side. What was the issue there? I mean, wouldn't the limited atonement solve the tension? Well, sort of. And it's why Reformed theology probably actually preserved me in the faith longer than I probably would have had I affirmed some other view. But then the problem here uh, was just, why? Why couldn't God just atone and supernaturally regenerate all people? I mean, he could have his own sufficient reasons like for his own glory or display mercy to his people, like in Romans eight, sure. But why not display mercy to all people so that they also could give you glory? Why not atone for the fallen angels? Are they not moral agents either? Well, I think reformed exegetes are far more hermeneutically sound and actually exegete passages in a far more accurate way than the non their non reformed kin it didn't resolve the theological issues that such a view entails. Basically, if the reform view is true, and I think it's more likely true than its competitors, and it solves way more of the issues, it still entails some other problems, such as, why isn't universalism true? God being in absolute control and having the ability to call whomever he desires and regenerate all whom he wills, That would be the best grounds for universalism possible. But that's not what an exegetically responsible reading of the Bible presents.
0: Stop saying that. Um, Sarah, (laughs) just this is a tangent. Uh, We're almost done. And I don't I won't I don't want to forget it. So uh, you were like a a wacky Pentecostal. uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the proper term for that is. Um,
1: Wacky pentacles. Wacky charismatic.
0: Yeah. uh, You believed in angels and stuff. Um, Did you believe that the angels would have a chance to repent? Uh, uh, I third
1: went off. Off with the other guy, but um, no, I think they would. Well, not because they all became demons that they presumably. Right, but
0: why? Why wouldn't the demons have a chance to repent?
1: Oh, because they've kind of they've gone too far. At some point, they've gone too, <laughs> too far. They've gone
2: too far. So, um, I mean,
0: they're free just, will creatures, right?
1: No, they're under Satan's influence. I
0: thought. Well, wait a, a minute weren't ultimate, they f- weren't ult- they free will atomic. creatures before? Yeah.
1: Yeah, before, but now. Okay, so the, so when
0: Satan is over, has overtaken you, you're not a free will creature. Yeah,
1: you're just a conduit for him. He's just How is that different
0: experience. from humans who are overtaken by Satan? Well,
1: exactly. You want to avoid. that. Okay,
0: but humans get a chance to <laughs> repent, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a there's uh, an opportunity yeah. for repentance for humans. So what I'm trying to understand is why the angels would be different. He mentioned angels just now. Why would angels be different in in that their course was set and they had no opportunity to uh, correct their course? Uh,
1: Their course was set. So he thinks it's like a Calvinist, the elect for the angels as well, do they? Or does he?
0: I don't know, because I don't know of any Christians who think that angels have a path of redemption, but I'm wondering why angels wouldn't have a path of redemption. They are just they've, like they've, they've us. seen too
1: much, man. They've seen too much. They've been there. They, they had their chance. They they got to the heaven thing and they still rejected it, which okay. was a concern to me, because how good is it up there, really? But, I tell- um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I never really worried about angels. They had their mm-hmm. chance. They flew it, Sodom
0: i take your explanation and i uh my response to that is the expression on tyler's frozen face right now
2: (laughs) which is what (laughs) the reformed scholars are best at (laughs) do you see do you see the the tension so the view that i think takes the bible the the most exegetically responsibly and seriously means that it also cannot simply dismiss the passages about reprobates and judgment and damnation in the same way that the universalists and the progressives do. That is, it's precisely because I think that the reform view is so true to the text and won't treat it like a theological wax nose that I found the tension to be insurmountable and it can't answer it because it can't it can't avail itself of the same type of answers that the ones who don't take the passages as exegetically responsibly can. Okay. With all that said, I'm going to wrap up this episode. I'm going to go to the questions. I do have some discussions again, uh, on, uh, uh coming up on the books, uh, in the coming weeks, dealing with divine determinism, compatibilism, divine hiddenness, and so forth. So if you like this content and want to see more, please hit the subscribe.
0: Okay. That's good. Um, Okay, I thought that was um, fairly brilliant, um, frankly, despite the, the the pushbacks that I had. And in fact, the f- the first time I went through it, I thought, "This guy's cribbing my stuff. I should I should write a, a fifty page book just on this video and these arguments." And I still might because I like writing words that apparently nobody reads. Um, can't help it. It's what I do, writer. So, um, yeah, I, th- I thought it was uh, very well argued uh, for the most part. And I, I certainly recognized where he was. Uh, you know, I have I, been... Largely in that same place along my journey, a few few different routes, and I I wish him well. I I really do. I don't. I don't mean to take his story and use it in some kind of exploitative fashion that he would not uh, approve of. And uh, if if you want to come on the show, Tyler, and explain your uh, some of your views more or. Provide some pushback or clarification. Uh, you are welcome to do that, skeptics and seekers, at gmail dot com. Drop me a line. Anyone can drop me a line. Did you have any uh, final thoughts about this, uh, Sarah?
1: um fine fine i suppose um i just yeah he's uh i wish him well i hope he uh he he, he can find his way I, I i'd suggest he chills out and not worry about trying to work it all out even just taking off the jesus glasses and you know he's pulled all the threads and he's pulled the jenga game and the whole thing's kind of collapsed around him and he's kind of trying to get it back in order which uh, we all did and we try to where where do i fit now and stuff but um, I just encourage him not not to worry about it, and just to look at the fact that very few people um you know when well, no one really knows the answer to these life's big questions, and the Christians just pretend to or believe they have faith in it that they have and um, there's other world views and and don't worry about it just be just be agnostic is what i suggest just don't you don't have to work it out it's fine, chill out. Um, yeah. You know, when you're sitting there debating about some of these things, and this was said and then this is said. In a, it, when, the further you step away from it, the more you feel like you're just arguing about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. It's just pointless. No one knows.
0: Yeah, I, I would echo that, uh, Sarah. I think that's um, something that we all need to take to heart. The, the fact is none of this is clear even when you're a Christian. It, it really isn't clear and mm. you're you're putting out a heroic effort to try to figure out what this invisible god wants from you mm. what he wants you to think and know and do it's so much sweaty effort and and mm-hmm. at some point you realize that half of what you think you had right was wrong and, and you don't know where to go. And I would, I would just offer this. If it was really that important that mm-hmm. an invisible God had some very specific things that he wanted from you, it's on him to let yeah. you know like he did with Paul or Gideon. It's on him. It's not on you to put forth all of that exertion to figure out what still small voices are saying in your head. and so I would I would just advise uh, what Sarah is ad- advising, which is uh, love and live and be in this wondrous universe and find connections that aren't invisible. And that actually matter. And that can make a difference in your life, in the lives of others. And be open. Whatever be open means, stay open. So that if one day some supernatural being really does have something for you, you'll hear it. But until then, dare I say, dare I make the satanic creed, eat drink, and be merry. That's um, that's all for now. Thank you so much, Sarah. I am looking forward to next month when we do this all again. And to all of you, we will see you next week. It's everyone's favorite Brit. Matthew, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
1: Goodbye.